0: section 26 of after dark this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org recording by molly craig after dark by wilkie collins the angler's story of the lady of glenwith grange part 1 i have known miss wellwyn long enough to be able to bear personal testimony to the truth of many of the particulars which i am now about to relate i knew her father and her younger sister rosamond and i was acquainted with the frenchman who became rosamond's husband these are the persons of whom it will be principally necessary for me to speak they are the only prominent characters in my story miss welwyn's father died some years since I remember him very well though he never excited in me or in any one else that i ever heard of the slightest feeling of interest when i have said that he inherited a very large fortune amassed during his father's time by speculations of a very daring very fortunate but not always very honourable kind and that he bought this old house with the notion of raising his social position by making himself a member of our landed aristocracy in these parts, I have told you as much about him, I suspect, as you would care to hear. He was a thoroughly commonplace man, with no great virtues and no great vices in him. He had a little heart, a feeble mind, an amiable temper, a tall figure, and a handsome face. More than this need not, and cannot, be said on the subject of Mr. Welwyn's character. "'I must have seen the late Mrs. Welwyn very often as a child, but I cannot say that I remember anything more of her than that she was tall and handsome, and very generous and sweet-tempered toward me when I was in her company. She was her husband's superior in birth, as in everything else, was a great reader of books in all languages, and possessed such admirable talents as a musician, that her wonderful playing on the organ is remembered and talked of to this day among the old people in our country houses about here. All her friends, as I have heard, were disappointed when she married Mr. Welwyn, rich as he was, and were afterward astonished to find her preserving the appearance at least of being perfectly happy with a husband who neither in mind nor heart was worthy of her. It was generally supposed, and I have no doubt correctly, that she found her great happiness and her great consolation in her little girl, Ida, now the lady from whom we have just parted. The child took after her mother from the first, inheriting her mother's fondness for books, her mother's love of music, her mother's quick sensibilities, and more than all, her mother's quiet firmness, patience, and loving-kindness of disposition. From Ida's earliest years, Mrs. Welwyn undertook the whole superintendence of her education. The two were hardly ever apart, within doors or without. Neighbours and friends said that the little girl was being brought up too fancifully, and was not enough among other children was sadly neglected as to all reasonable and practical teaching, and was perilously encouraged in those dreamy and imaginative tendencies of which she had naturally more than her due share. There was, perhaps, some truth in this, and there might have been more if Ida had possessed an ordinary character, or had been reserved for an ordinary destiny. But she was a strange child from the first— and a strange future was in store for her. Little Ida reached her eleventh year without either brother or sister to be her playfellow and companion at home. Immediately after that period, however, her sister Rosamond was born. Though Mr. Welwyn's own desire was to have had a son, there were nevertheless great rejoicings yonder in the old house on the birth of this second daughter but they were all turned, only a few months afterward, to the bitterest grief and despair. The Grange lost its mistress. While Rosamond was still an infant in arms, her mother died. Mrs. Wellwind had been afflicted with some disorder after the birth of her second child, the name of which I am not learned enough in medical science to be able to remember. I only know that she recovered from it. To all appearance, in an unexpectedly short time, that she suffered a fatal relapse, and that she died a lingering and painful death. Mr. Welwyn, who in after years had a habit of vaingloriously describing his marriage as a love match on both sides, was really fond of his wife in his own frivolous, feeble way and suffered as acutely as such a man could suffer during the latter days of her illness, and at the terrible time when the doctors, one and all, confessed that her life was a thing to be despaired of. He burst into irrepressible passions of tears, and was always obliged to leave the sick-room whenever Mrs. Welwyn spoke of her approaching end. The last solemn words of the dying woman, the tenderest messages that she could give, the dearest parting wishes that she could express, the most earnest commands that she could leave behind her, the gentlest reasons for consolation that she could suggest to the survivors among those who loved her, were not poured into her husband's ear, but into her child's. From the first period of her illness Ida had persisted in remaining in the sick-room, rarely speaking, never showing outwardly any signs of terror or grief, except when she was removed from it, and then bursting into hysterical passions of weeping, which no expostulations, no arguments, no commands, nothing, in short, but bringing her back to the bedside, ever availed to calm. Her mother had been her playfellow, her companion, her dearest and most familiar friend, and there seemed something in the remembrance of this which, instead of overwhelming the child with despair, strengthened her to watch faithfully and bravely by her dying parent to the very last. When the parting moment was over, and when Mr. Welwyn, unable to bear the shock of being present in the house of death at the time of his wife's funeral, left home and went to stay with one of his relations in a distant part of England. Ida, whom it had been his wish to take away with him, petitioned earnestly to be left behind. "'I promised Mamma before she died that I would be as good to my little sister Rosamond as she had been to me,' said the child simply, and she told me in return that I might wait here and see her laid in her grave.' There happened to be an aunt of Mrs. Welwyn, and an old servant of the family, in the house at this time, who understood Ida much better than her father did, and they persuaded him not to take her away. I have heard my mother say that the effect of the child's appearance at the funeral on her, and on all who went to see it, was something that she could never think of without the tears coming into her eyes and could never forget to the last day of her life it must have been very shortly after this period that i saw ida for the first time i remember accompanying my mother on a visit to the old house we have just left in the summer when i was at home for the holidays it was a lovely sunshiny morning there was nobody indoors and we walked out into the garden as we approached that lawn yonder, on the other side of the shrubbery, I saw, first, a young woman in mourning, apparently a servant, sitting reading, then a little girl, dressed all in black, moving toward us slowly over the bright turf, and holding up before her a baby, whom she was trying to teach to walk. She looked to my ideas, so very young to be engaged in such an occupation as this and her gloomy black frock appeared to be such an unnaturally grave garment for a mere child of her age, and looked so doubly dismal by contrast with the brilliant sunny lawn on which she stood, that I quite started when I first saw her, and eagerly asked my mother who she was. The answer informed me of the sad family story which I have been just relating to you, Mrs. Welwyn had then been buried about three months, and Ida, in her childish way, was trying, as she had promised, to supply her mother's place to her infant sister, Rosamond. I only mention this simple incident because it is necessary, before I proceed to the eventful part of my narrative, that you should know exactly in what relation the sisters stood toward one another from the first. Of all the last parting words that Mrs. Welwyn had spoken to her child, none had been oftener repeated, none more solemnly urged, than those which had commended the little Rosamond to Ida's love and care. To other persons, the full, the all-trusting dependence which the dying mother was known to have placed in a child hardly eleven years old, Seemed merely a proof of that helpless desire to cling even to the feeblest consolations, which the approach of death so often brings with it. But the event showed that the trust so strangely placed had not been ventured vainly when it was committed to young and tender hands. The whole future existence of the child was one noble proof that she had been worthy of her mother's dying confidence when it was first reposed in her. In that simple incident which I have just mentioned, the new life of the two motherless sisters was all foreshadowed. Time passed. I left school, went to college, travelled in Germany, and stayed there some time to learn the language. At every interval, when I came home and asked about the Wellwinds, the answer was, in substance, almost always the same. Mr. Welwyn was giving his regular dinners, performing his regular duties as a county magistrate, enjoying his regular recreations as an amateur farmer and an eager sportsman. His two daughters were never separate. Ida was the same strange, quiet, retiring girl that she had always been, and was still, as the phrase went, spoiling rosamond in every way in which it was possible for an elder sister to spoil a younger by too much kindness i myself went to the grange occasionally when i was in this neighbourhood in holiday and vacation time and was able to test the correctness of the picture of life there which had been drawn for me i remember the two sisters when rosamond was four or five years old and when ida seemed to me even then to be more like the child's mother than her sister. She bore with her little caprices as sisters do not bear with one another. She was so patient at lesson time, so anxious to conceal any weariness that might overcome her in play hours, so proud when Rosamond's beauty was noticed, so grateful for Rosamond's kisses when the child thought of bestowing them, so quick to notice all that Rosamond did and to attend to all that Rosamond said, even when visitors were in the room, that she seemed to my boyish observation altogether different from other elder sisters in other family circles into which I was then received. I remember then, again, when Rosamond was just growing to womanhood, and was in high spirits at the prospect of spending a season in London, and being presented at court. She was very beautiful at that time, much handsomer than Ida. Her accomplishments were talked of far and near in our country circles. Few, if any, of the people, however, who applauded her playing and singing, who admired her water-colour drawings, who were delighted at her fluency when she spoke French, and amazed at her ready comprehension when she read German, Knew how little of all this elegant mental cultivation and nimble manual dexterity she owed to her governess and masters, and how much to her elder sister. It was Ida who really found out the means of stimulating her when she was idle, Ida who helped her through all her worst difficulties, Ida who gently conquered her defects of memory over her books her inaccuracies of ear at the piano, her errors of taste when she took the brush and pencil in hand. It was Ida alone who worked these marvels, and who all sufficient reward for her hardest exertions was a chance word of kindness from her sister's lips. Rosamond was not unaffectionate, and not ungrateful, but she inherited much of her father's commonness and frivolity of character she became so accustomed to owe everything to her sister, to resign all her most trifling difficulties to Ida's ever-ready care, to have all her tastes consulted by Ida's ever-watchful kindness, that she never appreciated, as it deserved, the deep, devoted love of which she was the object. When Ida refused two good offers of marriage— Rosamond was as much astonished as the various strangers, who wondered why the elder Miss Welwyn seemed bent on remaining single all her life. When the journey to London, to which I have already alluded, took place, Ida accompanied her father and sister. If she had consulted her own tastes, she would have remained in the country, but Rosamond declared that she should feel quite lost and helpless twenty times a day in town without her sister. It was in the nature of Ida to sacrifice herself to any one whom she loved, on the smallest occasions as well as the greatest. Her affection was as intuitively ready to sanctify Rosamond's slightest caprices as to excuse Rosamond's most thoughtless faults. So she went to London cheerfully, to witness with pride all the little triumphs won by her sister's beauty to hear and never tire of hearing all that admiring friends could say in her sister's praise at the end of the season mr welwyn and his daughters returned for a short time to the country then left home again to spend the latter part of the autumn and the beginning of winter in paris they took with them excellent letters of introduction and saw a great deal of the best society in paris foreign as well as english at one of the first of the evening parties which they attended the general topic of conversation was the conduct of a certain french nobleman the baron Franval, who had returned to his native country after a long absence and who was spoken of in terms of high eulogy by the majority of the guests present the history of who franval was and of what he had done was readily communicated to Mr. Welwyn and his daughters, and was briefly this. The baron inherited little from his ancestors, besides his high rank and his ancient pedigree. On the death of his parents, he and his two unmarried sisters, their only surviving children, found the small territorial property of the Franvals in Normandy barely productive enough to afford a comfortable subsistence for the three. The baron, then a young man of three and twenty, endeavoured to obtain such military or civil employment as might become his rank. But although the Bourbons were at that time restored to the throne of France, his efforts were ineffectual. Either his interest at court was bad, or secret enemies were at work to oppose his advancement. He failed to obtain even the slightest favour, and irritated by undeserved neglect, resolved to leave France, and seek occupation for his energies in foreign countries, where his rank would be no bar to his bettering his fortunes, if he pleased, by engaging in commercial pursuits. An opportunity of the kind that he wanted unexpectedly offered itself. He left his sisters in care of an old male relative of the family at the Chateau in Normandy, and sailed, in the first instance, to the West Indies, afterward extending his wanderings to the continent of South America, and there engaging in mining transactions on a very large scale. After fifteen years of absence, during the latter part of which time false reports of his death had reached Normandy, he had just returned to France, having realized a handsome independence, with which he proposed to widen the limits of his ancestral property, and to give his sisters, who were still, like himself, unmarried, all the luxuries and advantages that affluence could bestow. The baron's independent spirit and generous devotion to the honor of his family and the happiness of his surviving relatives were themes of general admiration in most of the social circles of Paris. He was expected to arrive in the capital every day, and it was naturally enough predicted that his reception in society there could not fail to be of the most flattering and most brilliant kind. The Wellwyns listened to this story with some little interest. Rosamond, who was very romantic, being especially attracted by it, and openly avowing to her father and sister, when they got back to their hotel, that she felt as ardent a curiosity as anybody to see the adventurous and generous baron the desire was soon gratified franval came to paris as had been anticipated was introduced to the welwyns met them constantly in society made no favourable impression on ida but won the good opinion of rosamond from the first and was regarded with such high approval by their father that when he mentioned his intentions of visiting England in the spring of the new year, he was cordially invited to spend the hunting season at Glenwith Grange. I came back from Germany about the same time that the Welwyns returned from Paris, and at once set myself to improve my neighbourly intimacy with the family. I was very fond of Ida, more fond perhaps than my vanity will now allow me to, but that is of no consequence. It is much more to the purpose to tell you that I heard the whole of the Baron's story enthusiastically related by Mr. Welwyn and Rosamond, that he came to the Grange at the appointed time, that I was introduced to him, and that he produced as unfavourable an impression upon me as he had already produced upon Ida. It was whimsical enough, but I really could not tell why I disliked him though I could account very easily, according to my own notions, for his winning the favour and approval of Rosamond and her father. He was certainly a handsome man, as far as features went. He had a winning gentleness and graceful respect in his manner when he spoke to women, and he sang remarkably well, with one of the sweetest tenor voices I ever heard. These qualities alone were quite sufficient to attract any girl of Rosamond's disposition, and I certainly never wondered why he was a favourite of hers. Then, as to her father, the baron was not only fitted to win his sympathy and regard in the field by proving himself an ardent sportsman and an excellent rider, but was also, in virtue of some of his minor personal peculiarities, just the man to gain the friendship of his host. Mr. Welwyn was as ridiculously prejudiced as most weak-headed Englishmen are on the subject of foreigners in general. In spite of his visit to Paris, the vulgar notion of a Frenchman continued to be his notion, both while he was in France and when he returned from it. Now the Baron was as unlike the traditional monsieur of English songs plays, and satires as a man could well be, and it was on account of this very dissimilarity that Mr. Welwyn first took a violent fancy to him, and then invited him to his house. Fraunval spoke English remarkably well, wore neither beard, moustache, nor whiskers, kept his hair cut almost unbecomingly short dressed in the extreme of plainness and modest good taste, talked little in general society, uttered his words, when he did speak, with singular calmness and deliberation, and, to crown all, had the greater part of his acquired property invested in English securities. In Mr. Welwyn's estimation, such a man as this was a perfect miracle of a Frenchman, and he admired and encouraged him accordingly. I have said that I disliked him, yet could not assign a reason for my dislike, and I can only repeat it now. He was remarkably polite to me. We often rode together in hunting, and sat near each other at the grange table, but I could never become familiar with him. He always gave me the idea of a man who had some mental reservation in saying the most trifling thing. There was a constant restraint, hardly perceptible to most people, but plainly visible, nevertheless, to me, which seemed to accompany his lightest words, and to hang about his most familiar manner. This, however, was no just reason for my secretly disliking or distrusting him as I did. Ida said as much to me, I remember, when i confessed to her what my feelings toward him were and tried but vainly to induce her to be equally candid with me in return she seemed to shrink from the tacit condemnation of rosamond's opinion which such a confidence on her part would have implied and yet she watched the growth of that opinion or in other words the growth of her sister's liking for the baron with an apprehension and sorrow which she tried fruitlessly to conceal. Even her father began to notice that her spirits were not so good as usual, and to suspect the cause of her melancholy. I remember he jested, with all the dense insensibility of a stupid man, about Ida having invariably been jealous from a child, if Rosamond looked kindly upon anybody except her elder sister. THE SPRING BEGAN TO GET FAR ADVANCED TOWARD SUMMER. FRANVAL PAID A VISIT TO LONDON, CAME BACK IN THE MIDDLE OF THE SEASON TO GLENWITH GRANGE, WROTE TO PUT OFF HIS DEPARTURE FOR FRANCE, AND LAST, NOT AT ALL TO THE SURPRISE OF ANYBODY WHO WAS INTIMATE WITH THE WELLWINS, PROPOSED TO Rosamond AND WAS ACCEPTED. HE WAS CANDOR AND GENEROSITY ITSELF WHEN THE PRELIMINARIES OF THE MARRIAGE SETTLEMENT WERE UNDER DISCUSSION. He quite overpowered Mr. Welwyn and the lawyers with references, papers, and statements of the distribution and extent of his property, which were found to be perfectly correct. His sisters were written to, and returned the most cordial answers, saying that the state of their health would not allow them to come to England for the marriage, but adding a warm invitation to Normandy for the bride and her family— Nothing, in short, could be more straightforward and satisfactory than the Baron's behaviour, and the testimonies to his worth and integrity which the news of the approaching marriage produced from his relatives and friends. End of section twenty six. Recording by Molly Craig.